You're listening to a sermon on the Mission Ridge Church Podcast. Stick around after the message for more information about Mission Ridge. Thanks for tuning in. Well, good morning. It's good to see everyone here today and grateful for you joining us online. Uh, We are jumping into a new sermon series called Desiring Change. So um, I got to thinking about this for a couple reasons this week. Uh, First of all, someone posted earlier this week that six months to Christmas, and I knew that Logan would be really excited by that news. I asked asked him if he had uh, started decorating already. He hasn't taken his his Christmas lights down on the porch. And so I think over the next several months, we'll just see it start to accumulate in his house. But um, that also got me thinking about the fact that we're halfway through the year. You know, we're, we're this close to being six months into uh, 2020. What a, what a fun year it's been, right? And um, I don't know about you guys, but I started out with a New Year's resolution because I was turning 50 this year. I did do that, yeah. Uh, Just a few weeks ago, I turned 50 years old, and my goal for 50 was to have a 34-inch waist. And um, I'm happy to report that I do have at least a 34-inch waist. (laughs) My... uh, my goals, my desire for change met some opposition. COVID-19 just threw a great big wrench in, into my program. I, uh, I was working out six days a week, and, uh, and there were a number of nights that we'd work out and do a class in the evening time, and so I didn't want to eat, work out on a full stomach, so I, so I ate less at nighttime then. And when COVID hit, my conviction to my goal of having a 34-inch waist went to the wayside. <laughs> or maybe that's a waist side, something. Yeah. Change your world. We, we desire change. It's something that we long for. And uh, we're going to look at this sermon series through the lens of Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, these two books used to be one book, um, I did not know that until I started doing the research on this uh, sermon series. And we already had this graphic made up. I was asked earlier this week when they were one book, uh, what was the name? And apparently it was Nehemiah. I don't know. I don't know what the original name was. Um, but uh, in the third century AD, about the time of origin, they, they took this one book and they they split it into two books. And in today's modern Bibles, most of them have this as two separate books. But we want to read this as one story because it it really is. And this story tells us about a people who are desperate to change the world. They had experienced exile in uh, Babylon. And they experienced exile because of the failures of their forefathers. And we'll look at that a little bit closer today. 
But these are people that, that they knew their history. They, they understood what God required of them. Well, maybe on a bell curve. Not, not equally, but in large part, they did know what God required. And when they got things wrong, they were repentant. They were quick to change, which is something that I think is admirable. And this group of people that we're going to read about over the next weeks, they were worshipful. And they were committed to building the community that God was calling them to. And when I think about us being a church plant, us being a relatively new church, and and we have this opportunity to kind of chart our course, as it were. Many times we come to a new church hoping for a different experience. Sometimes it's a little different. We want want just a little bit better. Other times we want a lot better if we're honest. And so I think their story, the story of Ezra and Nehemiah and the story found in those two books has something to say about our story and what does it mean to chart a course here as a community of believers. In our last series, we looked at Abraham and the values that he lived out, sometimes really, really well, sometimes not as well. And so we got to learn from his wins and losses, and what does it look like to partner with God? What does it look like to be a person that God wants to partner with? And so we talked about that, and now we want to look at what's the blueprint? What are we trying to create as we move forward? And what can we learn from the wins and losses of the people of Israel as they reestablish temple worship and they reestablish the celebrations and the feasts, kind of the, uh, the liturgy that they live out. What's, what do we learn from their wins and losses as we build a blueprint for what it means to be a church here in Missoula? Well, I want to start off by providing some context. I tried to get this graphic into your bulletin and technology uh, defeated me. So it's not in there. If you want this graphic, I can send it to you because I am a visual person. And so I like seeing these up close and personal. But Israel really started on a great path with King David. David was described as a man after God's own heart. And he came about a thousand years before Jesus. So uh, what does it say? Um, 1011 B.C., And these numbers, by the way, these are all um, rough estimates. But these guys are all dead, so they don't care if we get the the date wrong. Um, But David was a man after God's own heart. And then he's succeeded by Solomon. And we know that Solomon builds the temple. And Solomon starts off really well. He does a lot of things well. In fact, for those of us in life transforming groups, we've been reading through 1 Kings and 2 Kings, a lot of the history that we're going to talk about here uh, to get us started in this series. But Solomon chases after foreign women and then their foreign gods. And Solomon doesn't finish well. In fact, 
he does so poorly that God decides to establish, um, to tear part of the kingdom away from Solomon and to give it to Jeroboam. And so God establishes Jeroboam as king um, in 930 BC. And Jeroboam is king of the, what's called the 10 Northern tribes. So there's 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, Rehoboam has Judah and Benjamin in the South. And Jeroboam has the, the other 10 tribes in the North. Now, Jeroboam in his kingdom is going to be referred to both as Israel and Samaria in first and second Kings. And so you'll see those terms interchanged a little bit in this story, but that's who that's talking about. Well, Jeroboam was concerned because he's, God's established him as king, but these are people that worship in one place, which is Jerusalem, right? And he doesn't have control over Jerusalem. So he sets up a plan. And so let's take a look at 1 Kings chapter 12. And Jeroboam said in his heart, now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David if this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem. Then the heart of this people will turn against their Lord to Rehoboam, king of Judah. And they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. Should remind you of a story in Exodus. And he said to the people, you have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel and the other he put in Dan. I want to show you on a map where Bethel and Dan are located because they'll be significant for later. Um, In the blue, north of Jerusalem, it says Beit El. That's a more Hebrew way of saying Bethel. That's one place where the golden calf was placed for worship. And then the other place was clear towards the top of the blue there, halfway between the little lake and the top of the blue at the headwaters of the Jordan River. Well, the, there's uh, several headwaters to the Jordan River, and that's where Dan, Dan was, take, was placed. And so we see the, Sol- the sins of Solomon have a ripple effect. And his sins became the sins of Jeroboam. And we're also told that that Rehoboam sinned like Saul as well. In fact, when you read the rest of, the, of 1 Kings and 2 Kings, you're going to find that 21 times the most common thing said about the kings is that they did evil in the sight of the Lord. I just, I, I googled this, this phrase and 21 times, that this was the epitaph of the king. And later we're told, and this is, and this is roughly half the kings, um, all the kings of the north of Israel and Samaria, uh, this is said of, and, and about half the kings of Judah. 
And so this is, this is the big problem that led to the exile of both Israel and Judah. And we see these words in 2 Kings 7. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria. And he carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Halah and on the harbor, the river Gozan, in the cities of the Medes. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God. Not, not just the kings, the people who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods, walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel, and in the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced. And the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their God things that were not right. <laughs> I love that line. They did secretly against the Lord. Like, like have you ever... Wondered if God knew what you were doing? <laughs> like you could hide that from him? They built for themselves high places in all their towns, from watchtower to fortified city. They set up for themselves pillars and ashram on every high hill and under every green tree. And they made offerings on the, all the high places. We'll talk about what kind of offerings in footnotes. We'll keep this PG in here. And they did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger. And they served idols of which the Lord had said to them, you shall not do this. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer saying, turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments, and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers, that I sent you by my servants, the prophets. Israel. The people of Israel, the, the, the 10 northern tribes, the people of Samaria, they look like the nations around them. The things that God had saved them from, they went back to. The thi- and, I, and, I, and I get that. Like the things that, that God has, that, that made me aware that I needed Christ as my savior, the things that he saved me from are the things that I have a tendency to want to go back to. And instead of influencing culture, they look like culture. They look like chameleons. So in 722, we see the fall of Israel to Assyria and they're exiled. And 605, B.C., the Syrians fall to Babylon. And it wasn't just Israel that sinned. It wasn't just the 10 northern tribes, but the two southern tribes represented by Judah sinned in the same way because later on in that same 2 Kings 17, we see these words. Judah also did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God, but walked in the customs that Israel had introduced. And the Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel and afflicted them and gave them into the hand of plunderers until he cast them out of his sight. And so 136 years later, Judah falls to Babylon and they are exiled. Later we'll see uh, Babylon fall to Persia 
And within a year of Cyrus becoming king, he's going to start allowing Jews to return to Jerusalem. And this is where our story will begin next week. We'll see the temple built, uh, rebuilt by Zerubbabel. He's one of our uh, primary uh, characters in this story. And then Ezra returns in 458 and Nehemiah returns in 444. These three men, Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah, are three main characters in this story as we look at this story over the next several weeks. And in this story, we're going to see a number of patterns emerge. The first pattern we're going to see take place three times where the Persian king is moved by God to send a leader to Jerusalem. Persian king is moved by God to send a leader to Jerusalem. And then that leader faces some sort of opposition. Kind of like COVID has been an opposition to us as a growing church, right? And then there's going to be uh, three times there's a strange anti-climax. So, so we're going to see this pattern of threes with the Persian king, the leader facing opposition, and some strange anti-climax. Something about the story is going to feel unresolved. And then the larger story, its ending is a strange anti-climax. In fact, it's, it's an anti-climax of anti-climaxes. It's, it's, it's going to leave you like scratching your head like, what, what is going on here? But what I really believe that the anti-climaxes, what they really represent is our need, their need for a savior. There's a larger structure in this book too. It's called a chiasm. We've talked about chiasms a number of times. It's a literary tool to highlight something that the author wants to communicate. There's something, there's a hidden treasure in the middle many times. And this chiasm starts with two bookends where Zerubbabel returns to Israel. And there's a list of returnees. It's a long list. It's, it's a chapter long in both books. It's so long that you probably have read, read it with glossed over eyes. <laughs> if we're honest. Like it's a part of the story we're like, and next chapter. And then we're going to see them uh, initiate uh, a celebration, Sukkot, the festival of booths, where they remember their um, exile or their, uh, their their wandering in the desert, living in tents. And then at both ends of this story, we're going to see them re-engage with the scriptures, re-engage with Torah, re-engage with the commands of God. At the next level of this chiasm, we're going to see Zerubbabel build the temple and face opposition. And we're going to see Nehemiah build the walls around Jerusalem and face opposition. At the next level of the chiasm, you see Ezra's return and you'll see Nehemiah's return. And, and these returns are, 
like the language and the way it's presented is, is very similar. At the center of this chiasm is this story where we're told that the people in particular, the priests have not separated themselves. And so somehow this story is about being separate. We see this in Ezra 9.1. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. <laughs> Danger. Danger. <laughs> Is it Will Robinson? <laughs> Danger, Will. <laughs> like this should be a giant flashing red light on the dashboard. This is the check engine light telling you there is a major problem. This is steam running out from underneath the hood as you're heading down the highway at the beginning of your vacation. This is bad news because these are the things that led to the people being exiled in the first place. And we're not that far into the story. And it's the center of this story. This is problematic. This idea of separation comes out of Leviticus 20. The Lord says, you shall not walk in the customs of the nations that I'm driving out before you. It's exactly what the people did to become exiled. And it's exactly what they're doing once, they're, once they've been returned. For they did all these things, and therefore I detested them. But I have said to you, you shall not inherit the land, and I'll give it to you to possess. I'm sorry, you shall inherit the land, and I will give it to you to possess a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God. Who has separated you from the peoples? The people of Israel and Judah, they have this calling. This calling to be separate. Now, when we think about separateness, oftentimes we think in terms of isolation. That's what the Essenes did in the time of Jesus. They, they were part of the, uh, the priesthood. They didn't like what they saw the Sadducees doing, their, their own kinsmen doing, their own relatives doing within the priesthood. And so they, they went and lived out in the desert. Qumran is one of the colonies, which is why we have the, the Dead Sea Scrolls today. But they just, they're like, not only did they live separate from the nations, they live separate from their own people. And, and we probably all know of somebody who's, who's done this. They're like, the church is getting it wrong, so we're out of here. We're going up on a mountain, we're getting off the grid, and that's their solution. But the separation is not about isolation, Let's take a look at this next picture. One of the things that God commands the Jews to do is to wear tassels. 
on the corners of the garments, and they end up, there's four sets of tassels that hang uh, just below the shirt. If you've seen our friend Marty Solomon, he's, uh, he's a practicing Jewish Christian, Christ follower, and he wears tassels. They're, they're commanded when they wear the tassels to have one blue tassel. They're not told how many white tassels to have. They, they had to figure that part out on their own. And they had to wrestle with why white tassels? Why a blue tassel? Well, blue is a picture of priesthood. And so they determined that they were 12 tassels and one of them is blue. And that's because one of the tribes within the 12 tribes is a tribe of priests. But also, they were called to be a kingdom of priests. And so when they look at their tassels, it's a reminder to live out this separateness. Not, not in isolation, but in close contact. Because these tassels, they get intertwined, right? They get tangled. Whatever, whatever mess the 11 white tassels are in, the, the blue tassels in that same mess. They're sharing the same environment together. And so it's an, if we're going to be a kingdom of priests, we're to be distinct, not isolated, but distinct. People should notice something distinctly different about us in the way we live our lives. Because as Christians, we're called to live separate lives as well. There's this Greek word used in the New Testament. It's called ecclesia. It means called out once. We'll talk about what I believe, what this is connected to in the Old Testament. But we are the called out ones. Your Bible translates this most often as church. The church is not the four walls that surround us, but those of us within the midst of the four walls. See, Jesus, to uh, hit this concept home, he takes his disciples up to Dan, up to the northern part of Israel, where that golden calf, one of the two golden calves was placed. Well, the Romans had brought another form of worship into that area that was even darker than, than what. And Jesus is, takes his disciples up there and he says, who do the people say that I am? And this is the first time that Jesus really has us down-to-earth conversation about who he is. Like they've been guessing who he is. I mean, they know he's the rabbi, right? The teacher. But who, who's he really? Like he's been doing these miracles, but there's been other godly people that did miracles. So that's not unusual, not in the Jewish mind. But 
who, who is this Jesus? And they say, well, you know, some say Elijah, and there's, they throw out the theories. And Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus says this, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my ecclesia, my called out ones. Israel was already to be called out ones from Exodus. But he says, you are Peter, on this rock, I will build my called out ones, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And so you and I have that same calling of distinctness, of being a kingdom of priests in the midst of a people that need to know about a loving Savior. But again, let's bring up that map. Because for you and I, when we read these stories, you know, we read over, we read over uh, a location last week um, and I didn't catch it initially. Logan didn't catch it initially, but that, that location had history. And when we are told that Jesus takes his people, his disciples to Caesarea Philippi, which is the northern part at the headwaters of the Jordan River, up there in Dan, just feet, literally feet away from where that golden calf was worshipped. But now Rome brings their own version of worship. And we'll talk more about that. Um, again, I'm, I'm footnotes. But I wonder if the disciples thought about the failures of their people if this location just brought back their history. I can imagine there's some places that we don't like returning to because it reminds us of our history. And I wonder if the disciples thought about the exile of the people and then their return. And the story that unfolds in the book of Ezra in Nehemiah. I wonder if they thought about the wins and losses, the way they did some things really, really well and the way they still needed redemption, still needed a savior. Because if they were honest, they needed a new blueprint of what it meant to live for and with their God. And we're going to evaluate that as we go forward in this series. What, what does our blueprint look like? Like I said, we, we looked at what does it mean to partner with God? What does it mean for me to individually be a person that God would want to partner with in Missoula? But now we're going to talk about what does it look like for us to be a community of believers together what does that look like? Because we have these 
we have these core commands. Matthew 4, Jesus said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. This is where we get our definition of what it means to be a disciple. Someone who follows Jesus, is changed by Jesus. And as they continue in life, they're on mission with Jesus. And then, what, does, what is that discipleship supposed to affect? Well, it's supposed to affect the way we love God and love people. Like if we're making disciples, but we don't love God and love people any better than our neighbors, if we, if we look like a white tassel in a, in, a <laughs> in a white tassel world, because a, because a priest helps people connect to their God. And Jesus says that we're to make disciples, that we're to baptize people, that we're to teach them teach them to obey everything they commanded. And if nothing else, out of all these verses, what I find is that there's no bystanders. Jesus doesn't call anybody to be a bystander, to sit on the edges and <laughs> cheer the people on stage on. Like we don't come in here Sunday mornings to cheer on the message and the worship and the prayers and whatever else, and then go about our weekly business. It's not what we're called to. It's not the life that we're called to. And so our blueprint, one of the elements of our blueprints is this, changing your world takes work. And you are the worker. And how do we get after this? Well, the Apostle Paul says this in Ephesians 4. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Changing your world takes work and every one of us who've been called by Christ has a role. And we want, and our job, my job, Logan's job, is to equip, is to train, to teach, to um, create opportunities Do you like the idea of change? Do you like the idea of the church being different? Do you like the idea of changing your world? Because I like the idea of, of me having a 34-inch waist. I'm not always committed to the work the self-discipline it takes to change that part of my world. My wife comes walking in with an ice cream cone. I'm like, that's important. (laughs) 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 When it's time to get out of bed to go to the gym, 
whew, snooze button feels pretty important. <laughs> Do you like the idea of change? Or are you willing to put in the work for church to be different? So the first call of action, it's eerily similar to the first one from last week. Invest in relational discipleship. And when I say invest, there's, there's, we, we invest monetarily because for me to do relational discipleship, it costs me. I have, I have defined my work around discipleship years before I was a paid pastor. I, I refused jobs because it didn't allow me to invest in other people in discipleship. I, I refused promotions that would get in the way of me being able to, it cost me. Financially, it cost me. There's time. I spend a lot of time. Over the years, I've spent countless hours. Everyone worth it. And there's emotional investment. For us, it starts with care groups. It's a group of people, eight to 14 folks that come together and we talk about the sermon. The curriculum is in our bulletin. We, we don't surprise you with what we're talking about. Um, we take the conversation from Sunday and we carry it on into our week. And we build this community where people can ask questions and, and wrestle and, and, and even disagree and, and, and not have it all figured out but we, we build community in our care groups. And then we have life transforming groups. They're smaller groups. It's either three guys or three ladies getting together once a week, talking about three passages that they read for most of the week. <laughs> we try to read those three, same three passages every day for a week, but if we're honest, it's roughly right. <laughs> I usually get five or six days in each week. But by reading those passages over and over and over again, it gives God an opportunity to speak to me personally through his scriptures. And then we have the one-on-one environments. Where, and as each group gets smaller, you can have a more real and honest conversation about what's going on in your own world and wrestle with things that are distinct to your experience. So if you're not in one of these environments, jump in, get started. If you are, who are you inviting? Our church should grow through our care groups. If we're gonna be a relational discipleship church, this is too big of an environment. We need people in these smaller environments where they could ask questions, where it's a two-way conversation, where we can wrestle and not have everything figured out, but safe to do so. And so invite others in. Or maybe, maybe you've been doing that, and now you need to find someone to serve, whether it's inside the group or you take your, your group to serve your neighbor or your friend who's in need. Because serve serving is a big part of what we see 
Jesus live out. And so as a group, we need to do the same. And Logan and I will help you get connected. We can help you get connected into any one of these environments. That's our job. And we'll equip you. Next call to action is serve inside the church. What church looks like for people who come walking through our doors, we all have a part to play in that in some way, shape, or form. The way we greet people, the way we welcome them in, the way we do all the magic that happens in the back to make sure that we could do our services online or that I don't sound too funny when I'm talking, just, just a little funny. You can't, you can't change everything. The camera puts on 10 pounds, can't fix that either. Um, so many ways of serving within the church. And it's not just for Sunday morning either. I mean, there's, there's other ways to be serving this community of believers. But together, we need to own what church looks like in Missoula. And we have that opportunity. And again, Logan and I can help you get connected. But it's not just about serving within the church. In fact, we have this conviction that as a staff, we have this conviction that for every one volunteer that we have within the church, we want to have two volunteers that are serving outside the church. And so these are a number of the, of the organizations that we've already jumped in with. We, last year, Generosity Feeds, 10,000, 11,000 meals that we packaged for the food bank. And we know of at least one of our families received those packets of food when they were in time of need. We're going to do uh, even more so this, this fall if COVID doesn't get in the way. But we've, we've served Childbridge and Watson's, uh, Generosity Feeds, 4th Club, Ronald McDonald House, I don't think I got them up there, the Hope Rescue Mission. There are so many places that you can get involved in. And again, we're here to equip. We're here to point you to the opportunities. And if your passion lies someplace else than, than what you've seen up on the screen, come have a conversation with us because that passion is, is important. It's, I believe it's a seed that God has placed in your heart. And we want to help you live that out well. Changing your world takes work. And you are the worker. Thanks for listening to the Mission Ridge Church Podcast. Be sure to subscribe and share if you enjoyed this message. Mission Ridge is a new church in Missoula, Montana. If you're in the Missoula area, we would love to have you join us for worship on a Sunday. For more information about Mission Ridge, connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, or online at missionridge.church. If you would like to partner with us financially, you can give securely online at missionridge.church forward slash give. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you have a blessed week. We'll catch you on the flip side.